Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I am a PhD student at the University of Washington, and today I'm speaking to Frank Pasquale. Frank is professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, and he is an expert on the law of artificial intelligence, algorithms, and machine learning. We discuss his 2020 book, New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI. Here, Frank analyzes the law and policy influencing the adoption of AI in different professional fields and argues that we are currently applying the wrong metrics to measure success in in those attempts, while we're fundamentally reshaping really important parts of society and uh, the economy through AI and robots. So Frank Pasquale ultimately argues that we need to take stock of what is important and make sure that human values guide technology adoption. And to that end, we need new rules of robotics. I definitely learned a lot from his book and can greatly recommend it. Uh, And for now, enjoy our conversation. Hello, Professor Frank Pasquale. Uh, Hello, Nicholas. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. And we're very happy to have you on the Forum podcast. Your 2020 book is entitled New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI. Why do we need new rules? What specific issues are you taking aim at in your book? Well, thanks. And, you know, I'm, the uh, book title is, uh, the title is always an effort to get attention. And the title is a little nod to Isaac Asimov's Laws of Robotics, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. And they're very um, neat and algorithmic about robots not doing harm and obeying people's orders and then not defending themselves as long as it doesn't uh, lead them to cause harm or not defend others' orders, et cetera. And so that, those are those laws are interesting and they were sort of played out in a number of science fiction scenarios. But what I found kind of remarkable is that in a lot of the discussions of AI and robotics, at least among you know, technologists, others, there seems to be this kind of drift toward these laws or toward thinking about these very old and, and to my mind, uh, not really adequately specific laws. And so what I wanted to do with my book was to consider how could the legal system uh, promote not just human welfare, but human power over technology and over robotics, right? I think that the older laws were very much concerned about how do we make this technology help people out, improve their welfare, et cetera. And I want to do that. But I also want to make sure that we are, as much as possible, part of a democratic initiative um, to shape where technology is going. And so, I, and so the book also intersects with the uh, debates over automation, you know, what, whether we're headed for a jobless futures or, or not. And I tried to address that by saying that we, it's up to us, right? If we develop political rules and uh, legal rules that promote um, AI as a complement to human labor, we're, I think, going to have a much more successful and inclusive economy than if we continue along our current path, which is to allow uh, the pressures of capital accumulation to demand uh, more and more uh, replacements of humans rather than supplementing their uh, value in labor. But aren't we potentially then exchanging a flawed political system or flawed political process in trying to come up with the right rules 
for a market mechanism that we're currently employing. I think a lot of technologists would um, yeah, make the argument that, well, you know, what's the problem right now? Um, technologies are introduced, and if there's sufficient demand, then those technologies diffuse, which then means that they um, are proven right by the market, if you will. Aren't we already in some way, you know, writing the rules indirectly by our participation? I think that there is something to be said for uh, markets as governance and for mm -hmm. uh, people deciding you know, what they want to buy or not buy, and that leading to uh, demand for certain AI and, and not leading to demand for other AI. So that certainly is you know, part of the picture. I think the problem, though, is that there are a lot of scenarios where that doesn't quite work. So for example, one of my laws of robotics is the idea that there must be, we have to avoid arms races. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, that came out of a study of uh, the military robotics, killer robots, et cetera. But if you look at the work of economist Robert Frank, where he describes the way that we all can be drawn into arms races, positional arms races um, for larger and larger houses, for better school districts, for more access to certain opportunities, et cetera. Um, if you look at Richard Thaler's work on the winner's curse, People trying to get into an auction and bidding more and more and more, you know, an irrationally high amount just to win the auction. Or uh, investment in, for example, uh, legal fees when you've got a big case mm. and you have to try to be a little bit more uh, invested than the other person. All of those, I think, are examples of like zero-sum games. And when AI plays into these zero-sum games, um, they can it can be very uh, destructive in terms of promoting surveillance, unproductive competition, things like that. So that's one of the examples that I give in the book. But I think also, though, I, I can I, I really question the market governance because I just think there's so many areas of high technology where we need to redirect the technology to solving the most urgent social problems, right? And so that's where I think it's really critical. And and you know, and, and we can even think of that. Well, I'll I'll, I'll ask I'll get another question in, but I, I, I can give an exa example of that, I think, from the latest, from the pandemic as well. But, but I, I think Please. that that's, oh, okay, well, great. Well, with respect to the pandemic, you know, it, it was remarkable to me that, you know, when COVID struck, there was a lot of governments were failing, including, of course, the Trump administration in the U.S. I mean, really did not grasp the, the scope of the problem or to the extent that it did, um, essentially had no plan uh, or no effective plan um, in part because of ideology, right? The ideology that essentially the state can never do anything right. Uh, it's just always in the way and, you know, just get the state out of the way. And um, I was actually on an advisory panel for the Department of Health and Human Services on health data, where, I mean, the initial push, you know, I, that uh, I was hearing was, oh, well, this is a great um, opportunity to get rid of a lot of health privacy laws or suspend them or something, you know, because that's going to be the great thing that we could do, you know, in response. Just, just no, and, and of course, the real response that would have really helped would have been to massively invest in health data, to massively invest in in um, uh, an apparatus that both protected privacy and that helped us understand about public health. And to me, you know, it, it, when you look at the, but, but the COVID situation was not just a failure of government. Also, the big tech firms failed, right? I mean, if you think about the way that Apple and Google developed like contact uh, exposure notification. It wasn't even contact tracing. That's yet, yet another example where like big tech's like, oh, we can take over contact tracing. No, no, they, of course they can't. That takes a huge amount of human judgment and effort and sleuthing and the rest. But even as a matter of exposure notification, people didn't sign on in part because they couldn't trust their technology. They couldn't trust right. their technology. They couldn't trust that the data wouldn't be used in some nasty way against them. 
And so to me, it's like that, that's where if you have a state that's more willing to have a Dirigist approach to say, you know, for over the long term, let's have a plan for 10 years for how tech can help us improve public health, as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, we'll just there'll be a market demand for, you know, COVID apps or whatever there might be. Um, that really failed. And, and I think that it's, it's it, I can give other examples as well, but I think it's, there's really uh, a need for that type of organization and organized response. Right. You also argued that values are designed into technologies as, as they are created. And that then obviously then shapes the uh, options that are available in responding or interacting with those technologies. Could you give our listeners an example of, of how that works in practice? Or how it could potentially yes. even go wrong. Yeah, you know, I, and, and this will build actually on the arms race example. And I think it, it, and it gets into some of the other laws of robotics about not counterfeiting humanity. That's a big commitment of mine in the book and complementing professionals. I think if you think about education, what are you, how do you value an education, right? And, and this is something I get really into in the education chapter of the book. Unfortunately, at the highest levels of government, very often, and uh, at the big ed, ed tech firms, the model of education is simply one of job preparation, and the, and the measure of success is maximization of income, something we can quantify as a degree premium. Like if we do massive research studies, we see that some people go to college, some don't. Those that go to college have a certain degree premium, et cetera. Um, attribute that, some of that or most of it to what they learned, um, and then say, well, maybe we can have a computer create the same degree premium, right? We'll just have them go instead of to college, they just sit in front of their um, laptops for mm -hmm. five days a week, six hours a day, whatever it might be. And then we gamify the learning and then we give them a badge and then, you know, let's see. And then our measure of success will be, do they get as much more money after our um, ed tech, behaviorist ed tech intervention as they did from going to college? And, you know, to me, that's the wrong question to ask because essentially, the real value of education, it goes far beyond job training. It goes to, um, I mean, I'm, I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that some of the things that we learn are intrinsically valuable, right? right. <laughs> There's no instrumental, I mean, I don't even have to make an instrumental case about learning um, uh, Shakespeare or, you know, classics or whatever it might be, the philosophy, all sorts of great things out there. Um, and, and secondly, um, that there's democratic elements to education. So how are we going to learn to work together and to be part of a community of inquiry? Um, there are, so there's these other values at stake. And that's where I, I think that, you know, that if you're developing um, AI for education, it really should be intelligence augmentation of the professionals who are at the core of the educational enterprise who can model all of those other values beyond the mere job preparation goal. But to my mind, if we if we continue on the path that we're on, and we just say, well, it's all about the degree premium, um, it's all on the road to automation, because essentially, you know, employers and others can just sort of probably say they, say that, oh yeah, we need them to accomplish these uh, fifteen hundred discrete tasks, program that into a computer, watch as they do it, and we're off. So, so the threat here would be that we inadvertently lose some of the. Um... Yeah, more ephemeral dimensions of some of these tasks that are being automated, like, for example, education. In, in effect, you're, you're making the case that technologies effectively misunderstand what a lot of these uh, jobs or um, even just activities are really about that they're replacing with, um, you know, roboticized or uh, artificially intelligent solutions. So the, so the threat would be that I implement some sort of technological, uh, technological alternative, um, which is often much cheaper 
let's say, right? So, for example, Khan Academy in the in the case of education, and um, you know maybe performs pretty well on some metrics. Although interestingly, you you report that often they these don't even perform all that well on the education front, like those um, edtech solution that you discuss in the book. But then the problem is that it you know it it crowds out all those other things, and we we might only realize that too late potentially. I think that's exactly right. You know, and 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 just so I don't get accused of talking my own book as an educator. Um, I, I say a very, I see something very similar about um, therapy, about a lot of uh, medical encounters, and about journalism, right? And right. I think there's, but but I'll, I'll come back to the just one other point that I want to make about education is that I think that the one of the big problems with the drive to automate more and more and put AI as as a substitute for um, seasoned professionals is a failure to understand that some practices are constitutive of a zone of human endeavor. So what mm-hmm. I mean by that is to say that you know you, you could you could say well if you say that like the only goal of education is to make sure people score higher on a test there's a million ways we could make them score higher on a test you know but and and and, and AI could be one of them. But if we say it is const- a constitutive practice within education is the face to face interaction of a teacher with students or of students learning together in a classroom um, learning how to um, uh, speak in turn, learning how to um, listen to others and to build on what those others have said um, and to uh, engage in dialogue, um, to both uh, learn, to both um, uh, follow what the teacher is doing, but also occasionally to assert their own rights and interests um, uh, and to say, oh, I, I, I don't understand, or I think we should be studying something else or whatever it might be. All of those things are, I think, really valuable. Um, but they're constitutive to education. I don't think there's any way to automate them. Of course, I'm, I'm about to, I'm, I'm just dreading this. I'm about to be um, trained in a conference simulation software because I was going to a conference, but now it's gone online. So the, pro- the, co- the software is promising to provide to us the type of experience we'd have if the conference was in, was in person. I, I mean, I know it's doomed to failure. I know it's doomed to failure from the beginning, you know, from my experiences and doing a second life conference back in 2009 or so, I think. You know, it's like, it's just not conceptually, it's just not there. Um, now, could it be there for people that are just completely sort of um, watching, uh, you know, playing with an iPad from age two onwards and whose primary social interaction is with monitors, screens, et cetera? Sure, hmm. that could happen. But that's where I think that we need to step in with a certain um, uh, values and to say right. that, that our values are to maintain these constitutive practices. Um Similar thoughts, I think, similar thoughts about uh, journalism as well. I think part of the huge problem we have with journalism and what I call the automated public sphere is that we've lost some of the constitutive practices of judgment involved in disseminating news, um, uh, trying to make sure people have some common ground of understanding of social reality, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I can really recommend reading your book, just the emphatic defense of professionals in large number of different spheres of of uh, society absolutely what i want to discuss next is the reason behind the very aggressive implementation of ai and robots you know across the board in all these different areas right that you describe in your book that um, have been you know um, reason for worry for some you know um, and, and applause for others but um <clears throat> Let, let's maybe uh, first try to to map how how aggressive is the implementation cu- currently um and you argue ultimately it's irresponsible to to implement um ai into a lot of different areas of life uh, as it's currently done why is that 
Well, you know, it's, it's interesting in terms of, yeah, I, like one thing to take a look at right now is automated driving, right? So mm -hmm. autonomous vehicles. That's a really interesting area where, you know, there are, I'd say about five years ago, there was extreme enthusiasm. I once once made a bet with someone um, who said, I think it was in 2015 or 2014, and the bet was whether 20 U.S. cities would have over 50% of their cars on the road would be autonomous vehicles by 2020. And the other, I said, no way. And the other person took the other side of the bat. You know, mm. I've sort of lost track of them. Um, it's for a bottle of champagne, so not that big a deal. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I think it's, you know, but, but at the time, this was quite, and the other person was, was really more into technology than I was. But the thought was, you know, this is a solvable problem. You know, we're just going right. to get enough data. There's so many cars out there with so much data. We're mm. going to solve the problem. And, you know, one of the early people to critique this was Meredith Broussard in her, her uh, book, Artificial Intelligence. She was saying, you know, I really don't think they uh, understand the depth of this problem. And what we've seen, and, and just today, the reason why it's on my mind is I believe that the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration has begun an investigation of the Tesla car's promises about um, autonomous driving. And, you know, I, and what, the lesson I draw from this is that it is less a question of technology standing alone solving a problem than the question of autonomous vehicles is a question of social coordination to develop infrastructure to wisely begin with some automation of what are the most important and automatable things. So for example, let's say freight shipping, right? I think mm -hmm. it would be relatively straightforward to do the automation or it should be between say taking a truck from the outskirts of LA to the outskirts of New York. And if we really invested as a society in the roads to do that, you know, maybe we could we could do that. And it maybe and it probably in the long run would end up being quite quite an advance and, and would save a lot of money and would be a very good thing. But uh I don't think that the, the problem is that like we socially in the US are just not really up to it right now to, to be that coordinated. And that's why I would expect that it, to the extent we see these autonomous vehicles, we're gonna see them first in East Asia. I think we're going to see where there is a strong state, which just as there is a more coordinated COVID response, there's going to be a more coordinated response here. Um, now, of course, and I think that it's interesting with COVID as well, right? I mean, there's, there could be a, 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 at first, early this year, the thought was America has all these vaccines. The U.S., it's going to be out of it. You know, we're going to be out of the woods and we're going mm. to be totally to normal. And of course, no, it was a socio-technical problem. And part of the socio side of it that is a huge barrier to uh, to the technology actually working and being able to be implemented is that you've got a nonstop disinformation machine in part empowered by other AI technology, right? So you could say that in a sense, like the US's horrific position right now with respect to Delta, you know, over a thousand deaths a day, et cetera, and ongoing social disruption is a great example of one technology sort of rescuing us and other technologies sort of sinking us into the murk of, Oh well, maybe ivermectin will do it, or maybe some other, you know, straight like like these just utterly baseless, bizarre uh, right. claims uh, that lead to skepticism about vaccines and irresponsible behavior and the rest, which which do get I think pumped out more and more by an automated system that's just looking for clicks, engagement, outrage, uh, etc. Because you're mentioning uh, self-driving vehicles, a lot of uh, or some of the companies involved have um, voiced irritation or um, have argued that, you know, people should really start behaving slightly differently or behaving in a way in traffic that will be more congenial to to uh, the self-driving vehicles in order not to confuse them, which I thought was an absolutely bizarre idea, right? Because the question is really, um, well, why do we want this technology, right? Like, who is this serving? What problem are we solving here? 
Um, I understand, you know, that the companies who create this technology want it on the road because that's how they make their money. It just strikes me that that's not really how we should make this decision as a society, right? And you mentioning, you know, that if we're going to see these technologies, it's going to be in Asia, reminded me a little bit of the fascination of a lot of um, technologists with, I don't want to say authoritarian, but at the very least more um, one directional government, if that makes sense, where, you know, there's not as much, you know, discussion and, you know, we have the solutions we know this is going to be good for people. We don't want people uh, standing uh, there and opposing us in the, in the courts or uh, through other processes or anything like that. We're just going to implement these things and they're going to be great for everyone. And you just have to like make sure that you don't step in the road because that's going to confuse the, the uh, autonomous vehicles. Please don't do that. Which then gets back to this theme in your book that technology should really work around the values of humans and not the other way around. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, it's it, it's... I am this this past two years or so, uh, I guess eighteen months at this point, has been a real reckoning. I think for a lot of people, and you know, I think I think it's um, if it hasn't scrambled one sense of uh, uh, exactly where the uh, positive uh, social futures lie, um, that's surprising. And, and I think that you know here, let me let me think about this on two levels. One would be. You know, your example of people being trained to act in ways that, you know, assume that the car could run them over because it doesn't have a, it's not as good as a human driver. That is very chilling, right? Mm. And I really worry about that. And I, I, but I don't think that the, that the, say, Chinese model is to go in that direction. I think the Chinese model would be much more to say every street in the country is going to have a certain like fluorescent tape along its side. And that's going to be incredibly valuable to keep the cars on the road or something along those lines, right? And so that I, I don't really object to. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that like the other question that comes up, and this comes out of like Ben Green's book, um, The Smart Enough City, uh, is the problem of or the idea of what problem we're trying to solve, which is what you brought up at the beginning of your question. Uh, I mean, to me, one of the problems that we need to solve um, is, say, getting people moving more, like walking and taking public transit, et cetera. And what I think is is troubling when you look at the issue of self-driving cars is that it shows how automation can be uh, used to justify and to entrench an unjust status quo, right? Mm. And the unjust status quo now is that, you know, I think in, in so many areas, um, there are effective subsidies for people to live in, well, especially in the U.S., to live in a non-dense sort of spread out suburb slash exurb way. And, you know, if, if the self-driving car is seen as a way of keeping that going, that's very troubling. You know, whereas if the self-driving car is one part of a larger transport strategy that's trying to conserve energy, reduce carbon emissions, um, encourage more healthy behavior in terms of walking and other things like that, that I think is, is great. You know, and so I think that there's there's um, a, a real issue there in terms of how we plan the future of transport policy. Of course, you know, it could be. Uh, said to me, well, you know, it sounds like you you have one agenda, but there's many agendas out there, you know, right. shouldn't be the diversity of agendas. But I think that's where the emergency comes in, right? The idea of the emergency and the idea of like, well, we've got a, car, a, a climate emergency on right now, you know, and, and I think we're all experiencing it in various ways. And and um, and to me, like sort of developing policy around that is, is, is going to be critical. Right. At the same time, you know, making uh, policy around emergencies is also potentially a little bit dangerous um, or potentially not just a little bit. At the same time, I think your your point is well taken that um, 
too many, or you argue, right? It's too many. I think it's an objective fact that it's a lot of, uh, a lot of discussions of uh, around AI focus on efficiency, right? That's that's how these systems are measured. Um, and what we've been talking about is is your push to try to say no, we really need to bring in other considerations, other metrics to try to measure how successful these systems are, which then should inform whether or not we want to actually implement them. I want to push you on the question of why it is that those other considerations are currently not respected as much or as important in implementation. Why is that the case? I think it's because this field is dominated by those with an engineering and an economistic mindset. And I don't want to necessarily say just pure economics, but I think that like it's it's the economism that James Kwok uh, described in his his book Economism that you know is is all about finding some uh, relative, relatively easy to identify key performance indicators, or this could also be called neoliberal managerialism as, as well, um, or, or metrics that we're going to maximize on, and then set the engineers uh, loose on trying to maximize those. Mm. And you get a little bit of acknowledgement of this by the AI folks when they talk about the value alignment problem. You know, But the problem with, for me, in terms of framing the question in that way, is that it's when you talk about alignment, it almost sounds like um, it's a purely technical problem. It's like, mm-hmm. boy, there's a whole bunch of values out there, and um, you know, we're going to align them together the same way that we might um, adjust the uh, air conditioning in a server farm to ensure that we uh, maximize cooling effect while minimizing energy use, or something like that. Right. That's not really what we're facing, right? We, the thing we just were talking about with self-driving cars. That's a huge epical political battle that is probably only going to get settled in the U.S. If it, if, well, probably it won't get settled. But if it were to be settled at all rationally in the U.S., it probably would involve like really different futures for cities and for suburbs, and you'd sort of be one or the other, et cetera. Um, and, and similarly with our discussion of education, right? I mean, the people that really want to see like fully automated education and homeschooling via that. They have a way different view of education than like what um, I do and, and, and what I think most educational experts do. And so the, the question then becomes, you know, you can't align these values, right? You, mm. you can't align and, and bring together and somehow, you know, nip a little bit off here and, and, and add a little bit there and then make everybody happy. There are hard political decisions to be made. Um, and that's where I think the, the, the issue is with respect to these values getting elided. Because the effort is to say, oh, well, we're just going to focus this conversation on something we can all agree on. For example, how much money did a person make after they went through either Mm. college or Zoom college, right? And if you can narrow the conversation that much, that, by the way, is also what has derailed antitrust law in the U.S., right? The the obsession with the consumer welfare standard, like some one uh, metric, you know, to say, do we have the proper industrial organization, et cetera. And if you try to do it in that way, well, you are going to have an answer and you can have people arguing about that. But at the cost of um, eliding and and, uh, just ignoring a huge variety of other values that are are just as as critical, if not more critical. You also draw a connection between the the haste and the the manner in which a lot of um, robotic systems and AI are being implemented in all kinds of different areas. And the wider uh, political economic background, which I thought was really interesting. And since this is the political economy podcast, uh, I'm definitely going to ask you about that. What exactly is the, you mentioned, you know, uh, economism by James Quark. You also mentioned, um, uh, yeah, this notion of neoliberal managerialism. 
But obviously, there's also a wider uh, economic paradigm or a set of economic institutions um, operating in the background, right? That you argue, you know, favor a certain kind of uh, technical solution. H- how does that work? Well, this is a con- these are concepts that I introduced at the end of my, my last book called The Black Box Society. And that book was a case study in a number of very troubling failures of the legal system to expose vital information about tech and finance firms. So it went into and it made a parallel between the failures of big tech and the failures of finance. At the time I wrote it, the failures of finance were obvious, but there were still lots of people that were, you know, incredibly enthusiastic about big tech, mm. including like, you know, I mean, I mean, I've given a paper at a law school where someone actually, you know, when I was criticizing Google, someone threw it on the ground and so threw it on the table and said, you know, this is not scholarship because you're you're saying Google's so powerful and, you know, in five years from now, no one will hear for, have heard of Google. Okay, this was 2008 that that happened. Um, you know, so, so you know, so, so this is, there was huge resistance to these ideas. And 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 I think that, you know, at the, and at the end of the book, what I basically said was the reason these companies have gone so long is because they were obsessed with speed, scale, and speculation. They wanted, they were promised everyone that they would do things much faster than humans could, that they would scale as fast as possible and make a lot of money off that scale. And that appealed to speculators. And I think the same problems of speed, scale, and speculation are what are still afflicting, afflicting AI, right? There have to be other core social values to AI. And my core social value that I invoke in the book is inclusive prosperity. Um, I, I like the, the Chinese um, uh, statement of a moderately prosperous society. I think that's a very interesting sort of third way between degrowth and um, just growthism or, or have as much growth as possible. And I think that, that is the, that's a model that would enable I think slower and less scaled, but better and more democratic um, AI development, but at the cost of speculators, the cost of markets. And it's so fascinating to me to watch the Chinese direction here with respect to regulation of technology firms, because they are taking it on the chin in the markets. The, right. the value of a lot of these stocks is going way down, but I think is it, and, and certainly there are things that they're doing that like individual things I would very much disagree with, but overall it involves a reassertion of sovereignty over the tech firms that are themselves I think really angling for a form of sovereignty uh, themselves. Yeah, specifically you argue that effectively we have to get away from this idea that the main focus of productivity increases should be to make everything right, like services, goods, anything you can think of, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time. Why do you think that's so important? Well, you know, this is a, I mean, the, my, I think that the, the robotics book, main, the main contribution of the robotics book to uh, political economy is probably in its challenge to Baumol's, uh, Bowen and Baumol's, you know, cost disease hypothesis, right? So the idea there was it was economists saying, um, wow, services prices keep going up, the price of healthcare, the price of the arts, the price of education, they keep going up. But the productive sectors, things keep going down in price. We keep getting cheaper computers, cheaper TVs, cheaper cars, et cetera, cheaper clothes and food. And the idea uh, behind the cost disease was that there was these productive manufacturing sectors and stagnant services sectors. And uh, out of that, out of that very loaded and value-laden metaphor, right? When we're making this sort of like attributing productive versus stagnant, um, one can't say that econ- economics is a 
positive science there, right? It's very normative, deeply normative in that type of uh, distinction, but you see it all the time throughout the literature, you see these sort of like indications of the cost disease as if it is a um, empirical law or finding, when in fact it is a highly charged and opinionated characterization of what's good and what's bad about contemporary economic life, right? So I try to flip it on its head. Mm. And I say that essentially, you look at a lot of the so-called productive sectors, a lot of what they're doing is they're doing mass pollution. You know, the reason the stuff is so cheap is because we aren't, we haven't taken into account its overall economic cost. Look at Raj Patel's book, like Seven Cheap Things, where he talks about, you know, a burger properly costed with maybe $250 or something like that. You know, uh, if we really looked at the carbon cost, all sorts of other costs that it imposes. And so the productive sectors are, in fact, not, should not be celebrated as such. They have all sorts of problems. And the stag, the so-called stagnant sectors are, in fact, zones of um, human self-realization, flourishing, and excellence that are meant to be celebrated and that should be celebrated and invested in rather than seen as like one more problem to do away with. And I mean, I actually did a, a piece, you know, about Hartmut Rose's book on, on acceleration. Um, I, I think I'm probably one of few political economy folks that would be reading um, uh, uh, works on the sociology of meaning. But I love his work. And, and, and one of the things that inspired me to think about was, you know, going back to the speed point earlier, if you could accelerate college for everyone, you know, from four years to two years, mm. would you well, I think many of these people did. Would what if it went from two years to one year? What if like one year to half a year? What if it went from half a year to three months, right? And then all down, down, down until you could like maybe have a brain upload. Well, and I know that sounds a bit like a you know a, a post-humanist fantasy, but what I think it also reveals is like there are some parts of life that you don't want to sort of like endlessly speed up and just move to the next thing. That there there are intrinsically mm. valuable and, and and a good part of life, and I think that that's where I you know really differ. Um, and that's where I bring my own normative values to what the economists have sort of said. And I, and I state that a lot of times the pay for those in the services sector is a cost cure, not a cost disease, because it's something that leads to the reallocation of social surplus to individuals that are performing intrinsically valuable and instrumentally valuable services for fellow human beings. Um, so, yeah, yeah that sort of is my, my, my inversion of the cost disease. I, very few people have picked up on this argument. I think it's just a little too out there right now, but we'll see. <laughs> maybe maybe we move more to a post-scarcity society. It'll be it'll be more uh, it'll, it'll become more compelling to folks. We'll see. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating point. I really, um, yeah, I really appreciated it uh, coming up in the book. I didn't expect it either. So so <laughs> additionally, right towards the end of your book, you do something really interesting that you sort of alluded to um, just now, where you discuss treatments of AI and robots in in media and art in in, in different ways um and you you know reveal and question some of the underlying frames and values in in the very same way that you do way earlier in the book um and and one thing that stuck out to me was that um you, you were mentioning how you know a lot of these uh, weird dreams that um a lot of that, that come out of this technology industry this idea of having a blockchain that will completely eliminate the need to rely on these you know fragile human systems these fragile political systems that that require some sort of like social interaction right or the perfectly obedient robots that are um, tempted to, to reduce reliance on, on others effectively. Where do you think that comes from? Why are these people so concerned about the unreliability of other people? I just thought that was a really um, striking segment of your book. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, and that part of the book methodologically is, is, is another 
real stretch, but I but I, I think that like I, I try to uh, I, I try to make the I, I make the argument there that um, there is a lot to be learned among those in political economic debates from the humanities. And I've I've been engaged with some of the people that do humanities and the modern monetary theory for that reason, and I've I've you know, read a lot of literature um, and science fiction on this these things because I think they do try to um, elucidate in a really clear way the values and the trade offs involved in certain directions of technological development. Now, the particular one that I I focused on in there, and that you're you're right to to lift up as a, as a motif or a leitmotif of that chapter, is people trying to find machines that make it so that they don't have to rely on other, other human beings. And one of the scenarios that I thought was fascinating was Doug Rushkoff uh, was, in a, was talking to these uh, people that were uh, very wealthy and they wanted to theorize with him or brainstorm with him how they could have an island that they could escape to where they would be served by humans who would not be able to overthrow them and take their stuff, right? So, so it's almost like a like a sort of like a, a very a billionaire's Robinson Crusoe vision, right? That we're gonna and, and you see that also with like the fantasies and many science fiction novels of like the spaceship that could go on a five hundred year voyage and it's got all the stuff it needs. It sort of recycles, you know, water and recycles whatever and and you know some miracle of, of future science. And I think that you know the it comes from a real failure to acknowledge vulnerability. And I've learned a lot, I think, in that respect from feminist theorists, um, people like Nancy Fulbright, and also the legal scholar, Martha Feynman, who's made her whole, she's done a whole oeuvre on vulnerability, about how vulnerable, like the vulnerable subject should be at the core of law. A lot of America, a sort of loud, aggressive, assertive, individual, my home is my castle site type of subject. And Feynman, you know, says, wait a second, what if we think that like for most of our childhood and most of our old age, we're dependent, we're radically dependent on others. Mm. Some of our old age, we're radically dependent on others. And in other parts of life, we are dependent, and we don't take that dependence as a problem, but we take that as a solution, right? right. So we celebrate Independence Day as opposed to Independence Day, you know, and that, that, that's one way of framing it. And, and I think that that is, um, and that's where I wanted to take that chapter, was to say, let's acknowledge our fragility and our dependence and rather than seeing in the machines a way of escaping that, achieving escape velocity from aging, from death, from dependence on others, et cetera, um, see them as one way of ensuring that we can better enjoy life together, um, a finite life and a fragile life, but a, a, a well-lived life if, if we, uh, to the extent that we can, we can find that. Um, and and that, that's where I wanted to move it. But, but I do think that there is a real temptation in so much of this literature to to go in that that just sort of like autonomous direction and i'm always allergic to that i mean i, I actually i started watching a, a show called sweet tooth which is sort of this dystopian um uh i think netflix show or something like that and it's really interesting it's got a lot going on that's excellent in it but it had it part of the premise was that like two of the main characters a father and son could be alone in the woods for eight years, you know, not be able to deal with, see anyone or deal with anyone for eight years. And I just, to me, it was just impossible. I just was like, I don't really think that could happen. And, you know, it's just like, and so it was difficult to read. And I, and I think that that sort of skepticism, I think we would all do well to, to bring a little more skepticism to like the fantasies of machine enabled total in, independence, uh, because I think that's a, a trap. And secondly, 
I think it's only something that's ultimately would, would be accessible, if accessible at all, to the very wealthiest. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, it certainly puts a new spin on the uh, space adventures of people like um, Elon Musk or uh, Bezos. Um, I saw that your book is currently being translated into Chinese, uh, which uh, prompted me to ask, to ask, what has been the response from different people around the world to this book? Have you felt like there was any sort of distinct responses? You know, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I, I have done, I did one in-person presentation of the book in South Korea, and I, or ideas in it, and then I did some, lots of Zoom calls around the world, like I probably did about 60 book talks um, last fall. Um, and, you know, I think that, like, the one reason I had a lot of international or, or non-U.S. examples in it was because my first book was so U.S. focused and I got a lot of pushback on it. I mean, it was relatively like it was well received, but it was but a lot of people said, you know, this is so focused on the U.S. You've got to right. look at more places and looking at more places is difficult. Like, so, you know, so, so it's 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 because it, you really understanding the nuances of what's going on in another country can be very, very difficult. I think that, you know, to get to your fundamental question, I think that the um, reception that I've had was usually like very um, engaged in the sense that uh, I, I didn't really notice that much difference between different audiences. Mm. I noticed in South Korea that there were many more talks at the conference I was at that were sort of more futuristic about uh, the tech. But I was also like people really engaged with, especially on the education front, um, what was going on um, and what the sort of arguments I was making for um, complementarity between machines and robots. So, yeah, I, I haven't yet uh, really thought of like a, a different, um, but I, I should reflect on that. I should think about, you know, to, to what extent was it, was it, were there different um, uh, approaches? Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, Frank Pasquale, thank you so much for being part of the forum. Oh, you're welcome, Nicholas. Great to be here. Great set of questions. And I uh, wish you continued uh, success with the podcast. It's fantastic. So thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.